I'm Ray Johnston, and Willow, the first thing I want to say is this. I couldn't be more thrilled by what's in store for your future. Um, When I arrived here, you just need to know, friends were saying, I am praying for Willow. One person told me it's the most prayed-for church in America. A pastor friend of mine said, hey, man, it's like America's church. That's kind of like my church, too. And I started a prayer list for whoever the senior pastor was going to be. And actually, I want to show you my prayer list. I'm going to put it on the TV screen. I have been praying that the new pastor would have these six characteristics. Uh, Number one, somebody that was God-honoring. They had a live, vital relationship with God. Second thing is this, a pastor that loves well and leads well. A church like Willow needs both. Third is this, a healthy home. Okay. I wanted somebody just praying that somebody would go, man, I am fully committed to ministry, but I am more committed to my family and my marriage, and I, the, the health of their home will spill into the church. Fourth was this, somebody that is biblically-based preaching so that you are being delivered and taught the Word of God. Five is this, a passion for people far away from God. Your church started because of a passion for people far away from God. You taught American churches to care about people that were far away from God. And I've been praying for somebody that walks in with that and continues to champion that value for Willow Creek. And the sixth thing was this, somebody that comes in and they have a fresh vision from God for the future of this ministry and what it could become. And I could not be more excited. And the reason is this, every church in America has one thing in common. They all have a past. I believe God wants to give you a future. And, and Dave Dummett, Dave is a good friend of mine. I have known him for a long time. I was not involved in the selection of Dave, but when I heard his name came up, my heart left because we I hire a lot of pastors. We have a staff of about 350 at Bayside. And five years ago, I tried to hire Dave Dummett, and we did everything we could. He and his wife flew in three times. They fell in love with us. We fell in love with them, and somehow we got to the end of it, and we were like, hey, come, and he was like, I something in me, I just can't, and I've spent five years wondering why that didn't work out, and now I know, and I believe God's hand has been all over this, and this is an answer to prayer. It is going to be really fun in the next few weeks. I'm going to ask Dave one question a week, and we're going to put that his answers into the message so you get to know him and his heart and what he cares about, and then at uh, the beginning of June, he'll arrive and off you go. And I just, I am so thrilled. God has been so good on this. It's embarrassing. And I would like to thank everybody there for your patience. Some things in life are worth waiting for. So Willow, congratulations. Now, on to the message, okay? The message theme for the next few weeks is this, standing strong in a shaken world, okay? One of my favorite books of all time was a book written by a guy named Robert Fulgham. And in that book, he said, all I needed to know, I learned in kindergarten which unfortunately I read after spending $40,000 on graduate school. And I heard him speak one time, and he had a very interesting observation. He said, find any group of little children and ask that group of little kids, how many of you can sing? Every hand goes up. What can you sing? Anything. What if you know the words? We'll make them up. He said, ask that group of little kids, what can you draw? We can draw anything. Um, Can you draw a jungle and the president eating something? Oh, no problem. How big do you want it? They all look like stick figures, but they're convinced they can draw. And he said, find that same group of kindergartners 25 years later when they're adults. And then ask them, how many of you can sing? Nobody. How many of you can draw? Nobody. 
And then Folger asked a brilliant question. He just said, what happened? What happened between kindergarten and adulthood to stop out and pave over this God-given zest and for living that God puts in the heart of every single kid that was ever born, but by the time they're adults, our culture has paved it over and smashed that down and destroyed joy and replaced hope with discouragement, which is exactly what everybody's feeling right now. There's a, there's a verse in Ephesians chapter 2, and it's the beginning verse, six words that mark our age. Check it out. It says this, Ephesians, Paul writes to Ephesians, says here's verse, as for you, you were dead. That came to me this week because a friend of mine actually said this to me. He said, it's Easter. Christ is alive. Why do I feel so dead? And I thought that is going on in a lot of homes every city in America, people just feel discouraged, depressed, despair. It's almost like I feel, I feel spiritually dead. I feel emotionally dead. I am financially dead. My social life is dead. And I just want to ask one question at the beginning of this brand new series we're doing. And the question is this. Paul starts by saying, as for you, you were dead. But nobody wants to get stuck in that condition. Nobody wants to go, I'm discouraged, I'm depressed, I'm despair. I just feel dead all over. And I got one question, and it's back to question, it's back to Folgem's question. And here it is. How do you restore passion? How do you restore joy? How do you restore spiritual health? And I couldn't wait to unleash this message because I have given this message for 10 years all around the globe because I believe it starts this way. The passage starts with Ephesians 2.1, but it doesn't stay there. And Ephesians chapter 2 was written to help every single Christian on the planet rise from the dead emotionally and spiritually and live with passion instead of having their souls paved over. And then, now, where do you discover it? Glad you asked. All you have to do is go further in the chapter. It starts with, as for you, you were dead. And then here is God's prescription for coming back alive and staying alive. And the apostle Paul writes these outstanding words. He says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Three words contain three things. Number one, he says this. Number one, we are God's. He starts by saying the first word is God's, but he doesn't stop there. Then he goes on and says this. We are God's. The second word is workmanship. That's a great Greek word. It's a word poema from which we get the word Pizza Hut. No, I'm kidding. It's the word we get poetry from. And it's saying, when you belong to God, you become God's work of art. He starts working in your life. You are God's workmanship, but it doesn't stop there either. Okay, it keeps going. Created in Christ Jesus to do what? Here it is. Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That is the entire Christian life in one verse. We are God's, we are God's workmanship, and we're created to do good works. In other words, if you break it out in terms of how would you and I live this this week, here's what he's really saying. 
We are God's. Number one is, how do I do this? I let God love me. In other words, we are God's. Verses 8 and 9 tell you how that happens, by grace through faith. And we belong to God, and all of a sudden, I've got a love relationship with God. And when I let God love me, I start coming back to life. We are God's, but it doesn't stop there. It says, I, it says we are God's, but it also says we are God's workmanship. And that means I do the hard work of letting God change me. Okay, So I let God love me, we are God's, and then I'm God's workmanship, I let God change me, and then here's the entire Christian life in one verse. He says, and I let God use me, I was created in Christ Jesus for good works. Folks, this is the entire Christian life in one verse. You want to walk with God, you want to restore joy, you want to get hope back, you want passion rising in your life, it is all right here. It's also, in my opinion, the deepest theological teaching in the Bible on building a thriving relationship with God and a thriving life. Matter of fact, if you want to put it in fancy theological terms, here we go. When I let God love me, that's salvation. When I let God change me, that's sanctification. And when I let God use me, that's service. Salvation, sanctification, and service all in one verse. Or if you're going, hey, bring the cookies down lower on the shelf, right? Here we go. He's saying this, let God love me. That is God working for us. Letting God, this is God working in us. And this is God. In other words, he's saying, man, God wants to work for you. And he already has. He wants to work in you. And he wants to work through you. That's the whole Christian life in one verse. And I just want to tell I'm very excited about what could happen to you and I and Willow and Chicago and, in your case, the world if we took these three things and we basically spent the rest of our life building these three things into our life every day, every week. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm going to unpack each one. The first one is this. We are God's. You know what that means? That means I let God love me. I let God love me. What does that mean? It means I start viewing Jesus and Christianity not as religion, not as rituals, not as rules, but as a relationship with the living God. And what that means on a daily basis is this. Way too many people, I go to church on Sunday, feel the love of God, disconnect the rest of the week. What that means is I get up and I daily connect with this book and I let God work in me. Now, what happens to me if that happens. Maybe the best way to describe that is this. Uh, some of you have heard of the Chase Manhattan Bank. You've been to Manhattan. You've seen it. It's a magnificent 60-story skyscraper in downtown Manhattan. And what you may not know is this. When they were building the Chase Manhattan Bank, they got halfway through, and all of a sudden they discovered, to their horror, this was being built on quicksand. And it was eventually going to lean, and then it was going to lean farther, and that this 60-story skyscraper was going to topple over, kill a whole lot of people, and destroy part of Manhattan. And they just went, what do we do? Do we dismantle it? What do we do? Then they thought up something ingenious. Uh, they sank pipes deep into the quicksand, and through those pipes, they injected uh, they injected a solution of sodium silicate and calcium chloride, and they injected that in into it. And just a few weeks, what happened is this: that sand turned into watertight sandstone, and that that building was finished and has been standing safely ever since. That is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 7 happens to your life and my life. When we inject God's word, 
When I inject God's word into my life, it decreases anxiety. When I inject this into my life, it increases stability. I need that right now. When I inject this into my life, it draws me closer to God. It gives me strength to resist temptation. It helps me make smart, wise decisions which shape my future. If this book comforts me when I'm discouraged. It'll impact every relationship. Letting God love me. What, I, what that means is you throw yourself in the arms of God and you live in the presence of God. Too many of us are trying to get people into heaven when God wants to get some heaven down into us. And that happens when you basically say, I am going to let God love me. That's the whole Christian life. That's first base and it starts there. Now, it doesn't stop there though. It says, we are God's. Let God love me. Okay. Then it says this, we are God's workmanship, which is I let God change me. There are a lot of people who are going, hey, I'm happy to connect with Jesus, go to church, and that's about it. For I am not about to let him turn my life right side up. That happens on a daily basis if you're walking with God. I don't really like telling embarrassing stories about me, but here we go. Okay, I pastor a church up in uh, Northern California called Bayside. We have a whole bunch of campuses, and Sunday mornings are crazy. Okay, I mean, we have six services. You're speaking. A few years ago, when my kids were little, I had four young kids, and we were living in Folsom, and we had to, we had to drive over the Folsom Dam Road to go to Granite Bay, and, and we did six services, went to a Super Bowl party, that, and then it is late night. I am tired. I'm grouchy. I had spoken on the joy of the Lord, but I had none of it. And I am driving back over this Folsom Dam Road, and I don't see this thing coming. It's about 8.30 at night. We're driving in the old minivan we had, and I hit a 18-inch deep pothole going about 45 to 50 miles an hour. Front left tire explodes. Back left tire explodes. I keep control of this van. I pull into this overlook over Folsom Lake, Folsom Dam, and I completely lose my cool. I grab my, my kids are all little. I think my son, Mark, at that point, maybe is seven or eight years old. And I get on, I get on, I call AAA and I go, get out of here and pick me up. And then I hang up and I lose it for about a minute. Okay. And, and I, I'm going, what moron can't fix this road? If the government were so, I, and I, so I lose it for about a minute. I'm going, I cannot believe it. And I'm blaming the president. I'm blaming our California governor. I'm blaming everybody I can. And that I blow up. That's about a minute. And I don't know if any of you have a quick fuse. It goes off. And then a minute later, you feel like a jerk. Okay. That's exactly what happened to me. I get out. This is embarrassing to tell you all. I get out of the van. I walk over to the lake. And now it's about nine o'clock at night. It's nice moons out. And, and so I apologize to God and ask God for forgiveness. And then my son, Mark, had gotten out of the car. Everybody else was in it. The other kids were asleep. Mark got out of the car and he just stood next to me. And I said, you know what, son? Um, let me just tell you this. Uh, this is not the kind of Christian. I just want to apologize, man. That's not the kind of example for you all want to be. That's not the kind of Christian I want to be. And I just, I looked down at Mark and said, hey, will you forgive me? Okay, he nodded his head, and then he looked at me, eight years old. He looked at me and said, you know, Dad, things like this happen. <laughs> I said, thank you, son. Maybe you can disciple me later. I go get back in the van. Mark's still outside. And then I, and then I said to Carol, hey, look, I acted like a child. Will you forgive me? <laughs> she, being my wife, agreed, then did. And then I said, I also apologize to Mark. And she looked at me and said, oh, do you apologize to Mark? I said, yeah. She said, oh, that's a good thing. And I said, why? And she said, because the minute you got out, Mark leaned forward and said, you know, dad doesn't handle stuff like this well, does he?
And before you judge me, okay, let me ask you a question. What don't you handle well? And the best thing about a thriving daily relationship with Christ is this. I don't have to be tomorrow what I was like yesterday. And matter of fact, Willow, you don't have to be tomorrow what you were like yesterday. God loves to do new things in his people. And if I will let God love me, that gets on the inside. And then I let God change me and I become a brand new person every day. This is phenomenal news and it doesn't stop there. Here's the problem. A lot of Christians are like, hey, I'm cool. Let God love me. Fine. Let God change me fine. In other words, Jesus loves me. This I know. My pastor told me so. And mine might change a little, but I'm stopping right there. The problem is this. The Bible does not stop there. It says the whole Christian life is I am loved by God. I am transformed by God, but I am also, here it is, I am used by God. I let God use my life. And the minute I say this, you are on this planet for one reason. We do a lot of team teaching at Bayside. And a while back, our pastor from Ireland, Andrew McCourt, was sitting next to me, and we are just, we are literally preaching on a weekend service together. We're going back and forth, and Andrew looked at this crowd, and he said, I want to say to you, you are not here by accident. He said, I believe God from all of eternity knew that there was something in the world that was needed at this time, and from all of time and eternity, he created you and knew that a couple thousand million years later, you would be needed then, and that's why you were born then. And I stopped him, and I said, right in front of the whole church, I stopped and said, are you telling me that God doesn't create people and then figures out what to do with them? He had a purpose and a specific set of assignments, and he created them from all eons past and brought them and, and he said, he looked, at, he looked at the whole crowd and he said, that's not all I'm saying. He said, I am saying that not only is that true, but you are in your geography in this generation on purpose, which is why you're here. And to miss that is to miss everything. The problem is this. Some of you are looking at me going, yeah, but you don't understand it, man. I, I can't speak. I can't sing, and that's about all it looks like God uses, okay? I am an introvert. I can't stand stuff. And it's, could God use little old me? I mean, I'm a plumber. I'm a business person. What, what, could God actually use somebody like me? There was a resounding yes on that one, and I can prove it. Years ago, I was a senior pastor in Southern California. And I resigned being a senior pastor, and I got a promotion, and I became a youth pastor. The problem is this. I moved from a multicultural area in Los Angeles, and I moved up to Marin County, California. And Marin County, if you all have never been, uh, Marin County at that point was the wealthiest county in the United States. There were almost 300,000 people there. It was 97% Caucasian. It was so lily white, it was sickening. I mean, the, matter of fact, uh, Robin Williams, the comedian, came from Marin County. He said there's an ethnic detector on the Golden Gate Bridge. And any non-white yuppies that try to get in, it flips them into the San Francisco Bay. That was a Marin County. I arrive at Marin County, and I end up becoming the youth pastor at the church right in the center of the county that had almost all the wealthy people going to that church and almost all of their teenagers. You want to take a wild guess what they were like? 
I walk into high school, Sunday school class for the first time, and I almost quit. I realize I'm looking at 18 of the brightest, best-looking logo on everything, Harvard, Princeton, Chicago, bounced to never seen in my life. And I also went, this is the most apathetic bunch of church brats I have ever seen. They are bored to death in church. They are as self-centered as you could be. There is no difference. They are not taking their faith seriously. And I literally went, I'm going to get them into missions and service if it kills me. It nearly did. I walked back into that same Sunday school class the next week, and I said, hey, what do you do during Easter? And I didn't let him answer because I said, because this Easter, we're going to Mexico. We're setting up in a tent city. We're going to work with poor people. We are going to, I gave this hour-long manipulative pitch about going to Mexico and serving God with the poorest of the poor and helping people and, and literally connecting with folks down there. And I said, at the end of this thing, and I'm pretty motivational with teenagers if I have to be. And at the end of that, I got them. And I said, all right, who's going with me? And they all went, no, 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 no. Folks, literally 18 straight no's. And I finally said, what do you do during Easter? One girl said, oh, last Easter I flew to Paris and shopped. But she said it like, didn't we all? Welcome to Marin County. Most of them, though, said this, man, you don't get it, right? We ski, we ski. That's what we do. We ski in Aspen, ski in Vail, we ski. It took six months of motivating, challenging, teaching, um, literally, literally, outright lying, actually. You know, like these guys after a couple months are coming up to me and they're going, Ray, man, you just got to know. We know we should go. It would be good to go to Mexico. We know we should do this thing. But you don't get it, man. We ski together. It's a tradition. And I'm saying stuff like, bring your skis. The skiing in Mexico in April is off the hook, okay? So April arrives, and I have 38 high school students bound, gagged, and handcuffed, and on their way to Mexico, some of those students still have not recovered from that trip. We get into Mexico, and we pull in, and the first thing they see are four teenagers, Mexico, Mexico teenagers, laying a friend of theirs down by the side of the road. No arms, no legs. Evidently, this kid had had four amputations. And these rich kids are looking at me going, what happened? And I'm saying stuff like, I don't know. Maybe he didn't have enough money to get medical help in time. And that got at him. And people with sick kids, with their ribs sticking out, that couldn't afford $25 to go to a doctor, that got at him. And multiple families living in a cardboard shack, that stuff got at them. And car, I, and the whole thing, it just started to get after two or three years. But the big shocker was this. We headquarter with a thousand other people, and then our church goes, and for the first time ever, I'm taking 38 teenagers to the middle of nowhere, Mexico, and we get into nowhere, Mexico, and we go down some dirt road to where our church is supposed to be. And what's supposed to happen is this. You're supposed to pull up and there's a worship service going on in the church. And you go in and you worship with these folks and then you team up, you have lunch together and you spend your whole week building relationships and bringing the love of Christ to their whole community in any way you can serve that community with these folks. The second we pull up to our church though, I realize there's something terribly wrong. Four charred walls, roof is burned and crashed in And now I have 38 teenagers looking at me going, way to go, Ray. And I'm thinking the same thing until I hear noise in the building. And I said, wait here. And I sneak around to the back and I look through this burned out window and I looked up front and here's what I see. Up front, there's a young, tough looking, 
Mexican national pastor, and he's preaching his heart out to nine very discouraged-looking people sitting on these charred benches. And I just stood there watching this, and I thought, what do I do? Do I go in? Do I stay out? What do I do? And I thought, you know, we just drove a thousand miles. I waved these kids over. I go, let's go to church. They all come over, and it had to be a major shock. This is the middle of nowhere, Mexico. And all of a sudden, 38 yuppie teenagers from Marin County come file in the back of this guy's church. He's so shocked, he stops his sermon, and he looks at these kids and says, Que pasa? Which translated means, what are you yuppies doing here? And we had this kid that spoke... Spinglish, and he looks and he says, he says, we're Christians, we're from the U.S., we're here to help and serve in any way we can. And you could tell this pastor understood this, and he got real intense and real emotional, and I literally, you could have cut the tension with a knife. He's staring at our kids, our kids are staring back at him, these poor nine people on the benches, they don't know what to do, and he gets real intense for about 30 seconds, and this pastor just kind of shakes, and then he says, they, and we found out later there's a gang in the village, and he said, they burned our little church down six months ago. And then he looked right at these 38 teenagers, and for six months, we've been praying that help would come, but we'd given up any hope help would ever arrive, but here you are. And our kids were stunned silent for the first time ever. And this one kid who is not a humble kid, he actually blurts out, and he goes, hey, they've been praying. We showed up. He looks around, and he goes, hey, we're an answer to prayer. You know what's interesting? That was their theme. They walked all over the place. They were high-fiving each other going, answer to prayer. And you know what's interesting? is Back home, they caused prayer. Down there, they were an answer to prayer. With these beautiful, gorgeous Marin County high school girls, some who never even seen dirt. They came down with truckloads of curling irons, because I forgot to tell them there's no electricity. Two days in, they've stashed that stuff. They've thrown a bandana on, and they have never looked more attractive because there is a sparkle in the eyes of girls that are living for something more important than just looking good that is never there when the only thing they care about is their appearance. And matter of fact, same thing with the guys. We're these useless high school guys. Matter of fact, we're in the building the second day. This kid goes, and he goes, hey, why don't they have a roof? Gee, I guess it burned down. He goes, why don't they put a new one on? Don't it ever rain down there? I'm going, it's a convertible church. I, think, I said, they spent every single thing they had on the first one. Some of these people have no money left. He shocks everybody by going, why don't we pay for it? He whips off the sombrero, and every these Marin County kids are getting out wads like you've never seen. And two days later, all 38 high school guys and girls, all of them, all the villages are on the roof nailing a brand new roof, and that was finished in two days. New windows, new roof for the entire church, which didn't do any good anyway, because by the end of the week, so many people are coming to the evangelistic services at night that our teenagers are putting on and leading worship at and speaking at and all this kind of stuff. So many people are flocking to this church. We had to move the entire thing outside because they couldn't fit on the inside. Well, these kids get home and they go back to school. And the friends are like, man, nice tan. Where'd you go? Vail? Aspen, Tahoe? They're going, no. Where'd you go? Mexico. 
What? You can't ski in Mexico. What'd you do? An hour later, their friends are running to try to get to class, and our kids are chasing them down going, I built a church. I'm an answer to prayer. What happened to our youth group is this. These kids finally caught a vision that if they would let God love them and they would let God change them and they would go the extra step and let God use them, passion flooded back into their lives, back into the youth group. And the next year, we had 86 students sign up to, sign up to go to Mexico. The problem is this. Our church had no bus, no van. So I stood in front of our church in Marin County, wealthy Marin County, and I said to the adults, hey, we are taking 86 students to Mexico. We need to borrow your cars. That was the exact response. Dead silence, nothing. We had a guy that has the gift of guilt. The next week, he got up and wrecked our church with one statement. Al Wade got up, and he looked at our church, and he said, Did you hear the rumor about our church? The adults in our church are willing to send their kids, but not their cars, to Mexico. It was awesome. We had 18 vehicles donated that Sunday to go down to Mexico. One guy, Tim Stanish, donated a four-door Mercedes-Benz, which I drove to protect. I felt responsible for it. People, as long as I live, I will never forget being in a burned-out shell of a building in the middle of nowhere, Mexico, when watching 38 teenagers catch fire for the very first time because they had discovered when these three things become your lifestyle, when these three things become what you're about, when these three things become your highest priority, when you start taking God seriously and you start taking the transformate power of God and when you start believing that God that created you puts you here on personal level, you wake up and discover you have become the answer to somebody's prayer. That will light you on fire. And I want to close with this question. Why would you want to live any other way? The million-dollar question on all this is this. How do you start? It all starts right here. I let God love me. And if you're watching this right now, I'm going to give you a chance to apply the two verses right before. By grace you are saved through faith. If you're going, man, I would love to be forgiven. I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I would love a new start. I would love Christ in my life. I would love Christ to come in my life and set me free and transform me and use me. I want passion back. I want strength back. That can happen right now. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. And Jesus, I believe you died on a cross and rose again. And so right now, I ask you to forgive me for all my sin. I let the past go. Jesus Christ, come into my life. I receive you right now. Be my Savior. And be my Lord. Call the shots. Wrap your arms of love around me. Transform me from the inside. And I give you my life, so use my life. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name. All God's people said.